0: All right, Jeremiah chapter 17, I believe this is the 18th session, it may be 19, we're pretty close to that. Of course, Jeremiah is one of the four, what are considered the four major prophets. He was also known as the weeping prophet, as uh, he did not enjoy his ministry. We would say that it was a rather fruitless ministry, but he did exactly what God called him to do, uh, and the response is up to the people. We've just got to be faithful to do what God has entrusted to us and uh, trust Him for the results. Uh, remember also, as we're studying, there's actually a period of 20 years of judgment that was being poured out upon Judah, and it had been long coming, some 200 years since the uh, kingdom had divided between the north and the south. And uh, for the last 20 years, Jeremiah had been preaching judgment. And of course, uh, three major prophets here that are contemporaries... And there are three sieges of Jerusalem. The final one resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. First of all, you had the uh, subjugation of the city. In 606, Nebuchadnezzar took control and Judah became a vassal state of Babylon. At this point, Daniel was taken captive. Of course, you all know his story. He actually served in the uh, administration of Nebuchadnezzar. ...and served in the capital city of Babylon and at one time rose to uh, the third highest ranking member of the kingdom. Uh, And then, of course, after about 11 years, the king of Jerusalem had stopped paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar... ...and Nebuchadnezzar sent his forces again to gain control of this rebellious province of his kingdom... And it was this point in time that Ezekiel was taken captive, and both the first and the second conquests of Jerusalem uh, were not taken with the sword. Both times, uh, Jerusalem simply surrendered their will to Nebuchadnezzar's. And, of course, Ezekiel was uh, ministering as a prophet to the uh, captives in the refugee city of Tel Aviv. And then throughout this entire period of time, Jeremiah was ministering to the people in Jerusalem and to Judah. And in 587, finally, after once again stopping paying tribute, Nebuchadnezzar had marshaled his forces and sent them down to gain control of the city. Only this time he laid siege to the city. That means surrounding it, cutting it off from all of its resources, starving them out, and then ultimately conquering the city with the stored and burning it to the ground and destroying the temple complex entirely. Of course, the 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry are shown on the screen up here, beginning during the great King Josiah's reign, who was a man that was sensitive to God's heart and led in trying to restore uh, spirituality and morality. Uh, But although the king's heart was right, the majority of the hearts of the people were not. And it was just an external superficial revival that really wasn't more than skin deep. And when Josiah died, then God's promise to not judge Judah and Jerusalem during his lifetime was off the table. And that's when things began to get dicey uh, with the first conquest in 606 and and so on. You see the two arrows up there. Uh, Jeremiah is not written in chronological order. And some of these passages of Scripture are identified in the text as to when they occurred. Others, we don't know for sure, uh, largely to our guessing. Verse 15 of chapter 17 will give us an indication that Jeremiah had been at work for some length of time pronouncing God's judgment upon the city. Uh, So it, it could be toward the tail end of Jehoiakim's reign... Or it could be, you know, when you consider Jehoiachin just ruled three months, it could have been at the tail end of Jehoiachin's reign all the way through Zedekiah's reign uh, when the city was finally destroyed. But you'll see why I say that as we get down to that text of Scripture. Nevertheless, Jeremiah had been on the job for at least 20 years preaching repent or face judgment. And that's where we pick up in chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. "...and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars." So their sin was engraved in stone in their hearts. The idea of being engraved in stone emphasizes that their sinful behavior was not changing. It wasn't like they were occasionally drifting out of God's will and stumbling into sin... Uh, they were living lives of rebellion. You know, we have a desire to serve the Lord. I'm, I'm, there's not a single one of us, uh, I would say. By the way, thank you all for the water. We got that delivered back there. Thank you all very much. There's not a single one of us that gets up on a particular day and says, you know what? I can't wait to get out and disobey the Lord today. You know, we all do because we're sinners by nature. When we get up in the morning, if we, we have the intent of honoring God in everything that we do or say. However, we blow it every day. And what's our formula for when we blow it? Well, First uh, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So get up in the morning. I want to glorify God. I want to honor the Lord. Something happens and, oh, I stumble and blow it. Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry I did that. I don't want to do it again. I'm aware of it. And I get back on my bike, so to speak, and try to live out the rest of the day uh, honoring the Lord and then hopefully not repeat the mistake the following days. Well, they weren't even... There, I mean, they weren't just drifting into sin. They were living in it and reveling in it. It was engraved, the permanence of their direction. So that's one uh, truth we gain from this idea of having it ingrained in their hearts or, or engraved on their hearts. The other is the idea of having a stony, dead heart versus a living, sensitive heart, which we will talk about more here in just a moment. But you'll also notice the tail end of this. It says, uh, I've taken the, uh, a bone that not just on your heart, but it's engraved on the horns of your altars. Uh, the Lord instructed the Jews at Mount Sinai that the priests were to take some of the blood of the sacrificial offerings and place it on the four corners of the altar, uh, or the horns, the four horns of the altar. You see up on the screen a altar that actually has been rebuilt in Beersheba in the southern part of, of Judah. And that is what an altar would have looked like in much of the place. Of course, uh, you'll see on this next screen uh, the the size of the altar that actually was built in the temple complex in Jerusalem. But again, the idea here is this is a permanence of disobedience. It wasn't drifting into it. Their hearts were hard. They had these cold, hard hearts. Uh, sin was engraved, etched in stone so to speak, on their hearts, and in their worship. And notice it doesn't say the horns on my altar, singular as the altar there in the temple complex. This is the horns of your altars. Now, again, you see on the screen, you see down in the lower uh, left-hand corner, this is that same um, structure in Beersheba, just from a little bit different angle. Upper left-hand side, that is the ancient city of Dan, a phenomenal archaeological discovery up in the northern part near Mount Moriah. And uh, this is where one of the two golden calves that were built by Jeroboam after the the uh, nation was divided into the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes in the south. The north immediately went into idolatry. And that is to scale. Now, obviously, that's just a, a replica, a model of what the size of that altar would have been in Dan... But it was similar in size and construction as they copied the altar that was in the temple complex. And then in the right-hand side of the screen, you see uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter, uh, they have what's called the Temple Institute. And they have set about to reconstruct all the artifacts. They are preparing for temple worship. They are ready to rebuild a temple and start worship. Now, if you remember, after the return to Jerusalem, after 70 years in captivity, they immediately began the sacrificial service again. They laid the foundation of the temple, they built an altar, and immediately began sacrifices, even though they didn't have the temple in place. They are planning similar strategies, starting... They already have a priesthood. Supposedly, they have traced a lineage of the proper high priest... They have reconstructed all of the artifacts needed for temple worship. And when you ask them about the Ark of the Covenant, they will just grin slyly and look at you as if to suggest that they know where it's at. Now, whether they do or not, I don't know. But anyway, they are making plans. But there in the Temple Institute, there you see the golden altar of incense that would have sat inside the first chamber uh, called the Holy Place before going into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested and where God actually dwelt, so to speak, among His people. But you notice this also has the four horns on it as well. So their sin wasn't just something that they drifted into. They lived lives of disobedient, and they were happy that way. Sin was engraved in their hearts, their behavior, and in their worship. Now, the idea of a living heart. Comparing Scripture to Scripture, the suggestion is a heart that is sensitive to the Lord's leadership versus a heart that's hard and resistant to the Lord's leadership. We see in Ezekiel chapter 36, and again, Ezekiel was a junior to Jeremiah, but was a contemporary in the city of Tel Aviv. Chapter 36, verses 22 through 28, it says this, Therefore, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. O House of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which you have profaned in clear sight of all the Gentiles, whether I'm where I'm sending you. Again, God had called Israel, they were to be a kingdom of priests, worshiping the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were placed right in the center center of the Gentile world, with Arabia to the south, um uh, Egypt, Ethiopia, Africa, to the southwest, uh Europe, to the east. Uh, Turkey and asia to the at the near east or or to the near north i 'm sorry to the west, Turkey and Asia to the near north, and the uh, far east Babylon in the far east uh, obviously off to the far east, which goes without saying uh, they had Supposedly, God's chosen people, yet they went whoring after other gods, so God took them out of the land and sent them into the Gentile nations. If they want to worship the pagan Gentile gods, then off to the Gentile lands you'll go. But God will keep His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because the Jews deserve it, but because God is going to keep His word. His name is on the line. His reputation is on the line. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I am sanctified in you right before their very eyes. When is all this ultimately going to happen? During what the Jews call the age of Messiah, what we call the millennial reign of Christ. Immediately after Armageddon, when King Jesus comes again and sets up his throne and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. For I will take you from among the Gentiles and gather you out of all nations. Not just Babylon. This is, this is referencing a greater uh, dispersion. The one that we have seen uh, in our day and age. After 1900 years of not having a, a place to call home, the Jews have literally been scattered throughout the Gentile world. We've seen over the last century the Jews returning from, from Ethiopia, the Jews returning from Russia, the Jews returning from Europe. Literally, all the nations of the world, the Jews are making aliyah or returning to their promised land, just as God had predicted, and they will be in their own land. And at that time, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away that stony heart out of you, and I will give you a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you. What's the end result? I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Similar passage, this one by Jeremiah a little later uh, as we get into our study, chapter 31. He actually talks about the new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Put those two together, that's specifically talking about Israel, the twelve tribes. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by the way, which that covenant though they broke, although I was a faithful husband unto them, but they were an unfaithful wife, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Won't be necessary to go around to every man his neighbor saying, uh, know the Lord, for they'll all know me at that time. From the least of them unto the greatest, saith the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Now, back to chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. So, we saw the reference of their stony hearts and the sin engraved in their hearts, the permanence of their behavior. And then we saw the horns of the altars. Now, it goes into verse 2. It says, While there, being Judah's children, remember their altars, not my altar singular, their altars, plural, and their groves, and the green trees upon the high hills. Looks like I ran out of space there. I'm sorry about that. Uh, picture on the screen is Beth Shen It's actually up uh, just south of the Sea of Galilee. It's an incredible uh, archaeological discovery. But the arrow points to and the circle arounds an area in the center of the city where at one time their primary deity stood. This was the center of the idol worship of this particular area. Now you see where the arrow points and you see that door down below there. If you were standing there you would see a, a semicircle and doors, many apartments so to speak or rooms so to speak. Well, this is where the temple prostitutes would work. In all of idolatry, sexual immorality goes hand in hand with it. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, that God created us intentionally. He created Adam just as He did anatomically, and He created Eve just as He did anatomically. And He created us as sexual beings, and He created the intimacy of sexuality to be held sacred within the bonds and boundaries of marriage, period, period. Nothing outside of that. And then God would also bless that couple with the fruit of the union, which would be children, which were a blessing from the Lord. And they were to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's God's design for sexuality. The devil's design is to have sex whenever you want to, with whoever you want to, however you want to, and if you happen to be unlucky enough to suffer the consequences of your sexual immorality, then we'll just simply abort the baby and kill the baby. Well, they did the same thing. They worship. they took their babies, their unwanted children, and burned them alive, uh, offering the Moloch and Ashtaroth and others. So in every case, sexual immorality goes hand in hand with idolatry. Now... Idols were generally placed on high hills. As a matter of fact, Mount Moriah is Mount Moriah. That's where God's temple sits. But a high hill as if going closer to heaven or ascending to the heavens to meet with the gods. And along with an idol, for example, to Baal, which was the primary deity of a particular community, uh, the chief deity, uh, and also was inferred and understood to be a male deity. Along with the male deity, they would erect what's called an Asherah pole. That's translated groves in the King James uh, Bible. But this was referencing a female deity and inferring the idolatrous union between the two. But the Asherah pole was actually... And I didn't, I could have put a picture up here, but because this is church, I did not. But it actually was a phallic symbol by design. So when they said they worship sexual immorality, they truly worship sexual immorality. And in fact, the scripture tells us that Manasseh actually erected an asherah pole in the temple of God. Which, of course, was torn down during one of the uh, re- the revival of, of Josiah. So that is how wicked they were. That's what it's referencing there. While your children, Judah's children, remember their altars and their asherah poles uh, uh, around every green tree and upon the high hills. So that's referencing the the iniquity of their uh, idolatry and sexual immorality. Now. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. Um, the mountain prophetically, when you compare it with Daniel chapter 2, um, Micah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 4, mountains prophetically reference kingdoms or nations. But practically here, Mount Moriah was obviously the mountain where God's temple sat. You see on the diagram up there, you see on the upper right hand side, you see that is where Solomon's temple would have stood, near where the golden dome of the rock sits today. Down below that is the ancient city of David. Out to the west is actually uh, Mount Zion and where the city was ex- expanded as they continued. Uh, more people came, they expanded the walls and the geography of the city. But God is speaking to his mountain. Hey, My temple, you're going to be taken. You're going to be spoiled by an invading army. And thou, speaking to the people, even thyself shalt discontinue from thine heritage. I'm going to take you out of the land that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which you currently do not know. Why? Because you have kindled a fire in mine anger which shall burn forever." Now, you've heard me say before that the Hebrew language, there's some 7,000 words in ancient Hebrew. We've got about 100,000 in English. Words have greater depth of meaning, so you have to study the context. That word that's translated forever is the Hebrew word ha'alam. And it means the end of a period of time or the end of an age. It can actually mean eternity in some passage of Scripture. But it could mean the end of a person's life, or in this case, until the end of this age, or I would say dispensation. There will be a temple in Jerusalem from which Jesus will rule and reign during the millennial reign of Christ. Everything that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will literally be fulfilled. But until that time, until the end of this age, there will not be a temple sitting there. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his strength, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Three different Hebrew words all translated man. They mean different things. The first word here is gever, and it means like an adult man or a mighty man or a warrior. Cursed be the warrior who trusts in Adam, mankind. Uh, Adam can mean, obviously, Adam in Genesis 1 was the man, Adam. But to a broader definition, Adam means mankind, humankind, both male and female. Cursed be the mighty warrior who's trusting in men and trusting in the strength of men whose heart has departed from following the Lord. It's not going to work out well. Understand that at Mount Sinai... They arrived there 50 days, or less than 50 days after being brought out of captivity in Egypt, after going through the midst of the Red Sea. There they are at Mount Sinai. They spend 11 months there. Moses goes up and down the mountain getting God's instructions, getting the construction plans for the tabernacle, getting instructions for establishing the Levitical priesthood through Aaron. And there in Leviticus, you see this promise made by God You shall make no idols, nor graven image. Neither rear up an idol, a standing image. Neither shall you set any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. I am your God. You will honor my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, that's referencing both their spiritual commandments around the temple worship, and their civil statutes of just judgment among the community of Israel, and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, the land shall yield her increase, the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing, when your, your grain harvest, shall extend all the way up until your fruit harvest, and the fruit harvest shall reach all the way up until it's time to plant the grain again. You will have plenty of bread, and you shall dwell safely in your land." I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down. What happens when you're lying down? You're relaxed. You're not on the run. And none shall make you afraid, and I will rid the evil beasts out of the land, and neither shall the sword go through your land. In other words, you'll not have to worry about invading army. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So God says at Mount Sinai, as he proposed to Israel, as he entered into a covenant with them. He said, trust me. Obey me. You're a holy unto me. I have called you to be a kingdom of priests. Do what I've called you to do, and everything's going to work out fine. But instead, they disobeyed God. They wanted to worship false gods of the Gentile nations. And when things weren't working out so well, they cut deals with other pagan countries, trusting in their own wisdom, To protect them and feed them. That's not going to work out very well. Verse 6 says this. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be like the heath in the desert. And you shall not see good come. But you shall inhabit the parched places, the wilderness. What is that talking about? A heath is a desert bush. In other words, you disobey me. You do it your own way. You trust your own judgment. You're going to be just like this. Get the picture on the screen. And in addition to that, you're going to be as a salt land not inhabited. Now, you all remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus addresses the disciples and said, I've called you to be salt and light. Understand that salt was incredibly valuable, not because it made your salad more tasty, but because in a day when there wasn't refrigeration, salt is what kept your food from rotting. When you didn't have a refrigerator to put the food in, if you didn't eat it, well, the law said you can eat it the day it's offered. You can even eat it the second day. But anything that's left over until the third day, don't eat it. It's unholy. Why? Does it magically become unholy rather than holy? No, but that's some pretty good protection that God is giving to His people. You don't have refrigerators. You can eat it the first day. You can even eat it the second day. How many of you have eaten leftover pizza that's set out all night? Yeah, you have. I know you have. We said, if it goes to day three, throw it away. Don't eat it. Why? Because it's going to make you sick. So salt, in fact, the word salary comes from the word salarium. You've heard a man is worth his salt. Uh, the Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt because it was so valuable. But Jesus said, if the salt has lost its effectiveness... If it's no longer doing what it can do, in other words, preserving food from decay, then the only other thing salt is really good for is to be scattered out and trodden underfoot. What's that referencing? If an enemy captured your land and really hated you and wanted to make sure that you never rose in power again, they would sow salt into the soil to where it would no longer be fertile soil and would in fact become a cursed land. So the idea here is if you disobey me, you're going to be like a dying shrub off here in the, in the desert, uh, or like the, the, the land around the Dead Sea that doesn't produce anything. Uh, that's the idiom that's being referenced here of disobeying him. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters. This is a picture up near the Euphrates. "...that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when the heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not... You don't have to worry about a drought coming, neither shall you cease yielding fruit." Now, you recognize that idiom from Psalm 1. It was a common Jewish idiom. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands, hangs out with sinners nor sits among the seed of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in God's law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit into the season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So contrasting the life of doing it your own way versus a life of doing it God's way. Here is the summary. This picture illustrates the contrast. You trust in man, you trust in your own worldly wisdom, going to be just like a dying bush or dry, salted, cursed land. Or you can trust in God and benefit just like a tree planted by life-giving water, green and strong. God says this, as you're considering this dilemma of which way you want to go, recognize that the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. Who can know it? Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever told somebody, or have you ever heard somebody tell you just to trust your feelings? No. The God says that your heart is full of deceit and incurably wicked. Don't do it your way. Do it God's way. You know, Your heart will lie to you. I've had people come into my office over the last 20 years that say, "You know, I've just fallen out of love with my spouse. Well, first of all, you fall in a hole. You don't fall in love or fall out of love. In love, the love upon which your marriage is built is not a feeling. Agape is an intentional decision, an action, an act of the will. John 3.16, for God so agape the world. Why? Are we that attractive? Are we that lovable? Not really. Pick up the newspaper and look at the headlines and you'll see that there's really not, some, not much about us that's, that would be uh, likable. Yet God chose to love us anyway. For God so loved the world, well, what are you going to do about it, God? That He gave, notice the action, His only begotten Son. So, you know, oh, I've just fallen out of love. No, you know, you don't fall in love. When you get married, I say these words. Repeat after me. I state your name. Take this man or woman to be your lawful wedded husband, in sickness and in health, in poverty and as wealth, in the good that may light your 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 days, and, and in the darkness that may uh, cover your ways. Uh, richer for poor, for better for worse, sickness and health. We're going to live life together. I pledge to you, my love. You don't say I'm going to. Love you as long as I feel like loving you. Let me tell you, how long have you all been married for longer than a week? Okay, very good. You all know what I'm talking about. There are days you don't like your husband. Oh, you all are lying to me. But you always agape your husband. You know, phileo is conditional. Hey, this person was nice to me. I like being around them. Agape is unconditional. I pledge to you my love. Well, so do you trust your feelings? Nope, absolutely not. Your heart will fool you. In fact, Paul made the observation when he was talking to the Corinthian church, he couldn't even honestly evaluate his own labor. He would leave that up to the Lord Jesus one of these days to judge the work that he did. We all can justify our own. You give any of us enough time, we can justify anything that we do. You know what I'm talking about? You know, well, I, I you know, yeah, I, yeah, I was unfaithful to my wife, but you don't understand. She really let herself go. And she didn't pay anything. I, I, let me give you all these reasons why I did what I did. No, there's, there's not, there's not a good explanation. You just disobeyed. You just did wrong. I had some, I had a couple, actually a grandmother and a granddaughter come to my office one time. This was a long time ago, probably 15 plus years ago. And the grandmother was troubled because, uh, the granddaughter, when they would go shopping together at Walmart, Uh, The granddaughter would sometimes take prices from one object and put it on another object so she could buy it for less money. Now, what would we call that? (laughs) Smart. Uh, That's stealing. But she justified it. She said the prices are too high. Walmart may be a lot of things, but generally, Walmart's prices aren't too high. But the point is, you give any of us enough time without accountability and without being in God's Word, we can justify any of our behavior. So, again, understand that we do not trust our feelings. Your heart is full of lies, and your heart will lie to you. Well, who can possibly judge the heart? Who can control the heart? Well, I, the Lord. Search the heart. I train, I try your your inner man even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. As the partridge sitteth on the eggs and hatcheth them not. What's the idiom there? Well, you see in part B what he's talking about. He that gets riches deceitfully shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end shall be a fool. Fool. We are going to see more Specific examples of why God was really upset with Judah. And it wasn't just the form and lack of sincerity of worship. It was the fact that they weren't seven-day followers. Let me give you an example. As Christians, we should be the most honest, hardworking, ethical, Business people on the planet, we shouldn't have to worry about reading. We shouldn't need lawyers. Honestly, (laughs) we do. Why do we need lawyers? Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But the Jews were, in fact, you go. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees for the same thing, not doing the things that God had asked them to do or commanded them to do in the world of business taking care of your elderly parents, um, all these things. They were cheating. They were stealing. They were deceiving. God says, hey, you, th- you think you've prospered? You think you've, you've got a nice, tidy nest egg that you have uh, accumulated from deception and unethical business principles and practices? Well, just as if a partridge came and, and sat on the eggs that someone else laid, uh-uh, you're not gonna eat, those aren't your chicks. So, too, the money that you have gotten through deceit, you're not going to get to enjoy. You're going to leave all your wealth right here, and you are going to be taken as captive into another land. Verse 12, Jeremiah, at this point, unable to control his zeal, cries out that they are to trust the Lord. People, your sanctuary is God's throne. Do it His way. Our only hope is God's mercy and blessings, verse 12 o Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, shall be brought to shame, shall be greatly disappointed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. copy of a couple of things rabbinically that you would see here first of all, you see the contrast of the fertility of being blessed with the life-giving water, which is obedience and trust in the Lord, as contrasted by the famine of the drought of God's judgment. Second, as you see in the verse up there, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, speaking of the dust of, of death, you know, dust is associated with death. You know, from the dust of the earth we were made, and under the dust we will return. Dust is associated with judgment, associated with death. There's the contrast of having your name written in heaven versus having your name written in the dust of the earth. And when you think about that, you kind of will not take time to go there tonight because not the point of the lesson. But think about it. when in, in, in John chapter 8, when they had set up this woman and caught her in adultery, amazingly didn't catch the man, but caught this woman in adultery, brought her to Jesus to try to set up Jesus. They thought they had Jesus in the horns of a dilemma. Well, Jesus, what did He do? He knelt down and what? Wrote in the dust of the earth. Understand, rabbinically speaking, either written in heaven or written in dust of the earth. The dust of the earth speaks of death, speaks of judgment. So not only was it what Jesus was writing, which we'll not go into tonight. I'll save that for another sermon. But it was the fact that Jesus was addressing them by writing in the dust of the earth. So this was understood significantly by them. Heal me, O Lord. And I shall be healed. Save me. And I shall be saved. For thou art my praise. Behold they say unto me. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. What's going on here? Well God is. Or Jeremiah is pleading with the Lord. And now Jeremiah is pointing out some of the stuff that he's having to deal with. As if God didn't know what was going on. They were mocking Jeremiah. This is where I get the idea of placing Jeremiah, this particular chapter, at least 20 years into Jeremiah's ministry. Late in the reign of Jehoiakim or early to mid part of the reign of Zedekiah. Where is this judgment, Jeremiah? You've been coming down here and yapping about judgment, yapping about God, and yapping about obedience and saying we're disobedient and your prophet saying this. And judgment is coming from the north. Ha <laughs> ha Well, it's been going on for 25, 30 years now. Don't see anything. We're still here. Where is this judgment? As a matter of fact, we've dodged the bullet twice. Twice, that Babylon, or Babylon's come down here and they left us alone. We just said, okay, we, we promise we'll take, we'll be obedient and they've left. There's no judgment coming. There's no accountability. Well, you know what? The Bible says that we're going to see the same thing in our day. Peter, after his entire ministry, his last letter written shortly before his martyrdom, he said this, this, my second letter, beloved, my my children, my dearly beloved, I write unto you in both which I stir up in your minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets, Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, <laughs> Where is this judgment you talk about, Blair? <laughs> For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue, as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Isn't it interesting that modern scientists refuse to accept the idea that the world was once covered by water? And they spend so much time trying to find any evidence of water on Mars. Yet we are still 70% covered by water. They have discovered um, um, evidence giant fish skeletons in Kansas, seashells and old oyster shells, 25,000 feet up on mountain ranges, you might conclude that at one time they were covered by water. But why is it that scientists refuse to accept the idea that the world was once covered by water? Because if they do, then they recognize that Noah's flood actually happened. And God really exists. And if God judged the world then, then we're going to face judgment too. We better get serious with God. Man doesn't want to have God. Man wants to be God. So man can do whatever he wants to do and not have to worry about accountability or judgment. So it's in our ignorance. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Well, let me go back for Verse 7. Uh, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved until fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, don't be ignorant of this thing. For one day is with the Lord as is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We'll not go into it now, but this is one of the reverses. Again, when you study it from a rabbinical eye, you could make the assertion that just as God created everything that exists in six days and then rested on the 7th. Human history, world history, could be 6,000 years, and the millennial reign on the 7th, seventh, the 7,000 year. I believe that. The Jews believed that as well. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, what's the next word? will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So just as they mock Jeremiah saying, where is God's judgment? You keep talking about, well, we see the same thing in our day, denying even that the flood ever occurred because we deny any, any thought of God ever holding us accountable for our actions as we want to be our own God. Verse 16, as for me, God, here Jeremiah is pleading, and you've seen every week it's about the same story. And let me tell you, how many of you all have gotten beaten up and are discouraged a little bit right now? Okay, you all are honest. The rest of you are lying. We have all been beaten up over the last year. Let me tell you what. We have been the victims of an incredible psychological warfare campaign. The whole idea of isolating, don't assemble together, covering your face so you can't communicate visually and enjoy the expressions of one another or smile or anything else. We're, they're doing the very best they can to really run us down. And it works to some degree. I gotta tell you, if I didn't, if I wasn't seeing exactly what I thought I would be seeing if I was alive in the generation leading up to the return of Christ, I would be incredibly beaten down right now. And Jeremiah knew what was going to happen. And he was faithfully doing what God had called him to do. But he still was upset. Margaret, back in the back, running for office. What's Margaret doing? Does Margaret need more things to do? Does Does Margaret want to make all the money she's going to make as a school board member? No. But she wants to make a difference. She wants to impact positively the kids in our community. And... What kind of thanks is she getting for it? Probably beaten up. You know, when I ran for Senate, it was a rude awakening for my wife. At one time, I was actually in the headlines of the Edmund Evening Sun, Paul Blair, hometown hero. Sports figure, everybody liked me, even though you fans like me, because we never beat you. What's it not like about me? Uh, and, uh you know, Involved in all, you know, the, the, how, what is the big fundraiser Edmund Memorial does every year and raises a boatload of money for Swine Week. Swine Week, yeah. I was a part of the very first one. As a Chicago Bear, they asked if I would come and sign autographs and do stuff. They were raising money for a teacher that had cancer. I was a... Edmund loved me until I became a Christian pastor and conservative political guy. <laughs> then we'd go knock on doors and My kids and my wife learned lots of things about me that they didn't even know was true, and they aren't true. So it can be, it can be, you can, that's one of the reasons you need to be here. You need to be here every Sunday, and you are. You know what? We don't come together for church just to hear good Bible teaching, because you can sit at home and live stream. But Hebrews 10 tells us, do not. Forsake the synagoguing of yourselves together, as some do. You are to come together so you can observe one another. That is to keep an eye on each other and out for each other. That's accountability. And to provoke one another unto love and to good works. You know, if the world hates Jesus, Jesus said the night of his rest that the world's going to hate you too. You better. We better come together so we can hug on each other and love on each other and encourage each other. Because we can get worn down. We can get beaten down. As for me, Jeremiah says, I've done exactly what you called me to do, Lord. I've shepherded the people. I haven't, I haven't asked for this job, and I don't want judgment to come upon people. Please forgive me if you haven't been here before. I read the King James, and I give you Paul's uninspired version As I'm translating it in my mind to where we, how we might speak. I I haven't, I don't want this judgment to come. You know that. But everything that's come out of my mouth was what you asked me to do. Lord, don't ruin me. Don't be a terror to me. Don't bring destruction to me. Lord, you're my hope in the day of evil. Let them be put to shame. Who are them? Those that persecute me. And by the way, we're going to see that he was persecuted. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. Let not me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, shattered, broken in pieces. But let not me be broken in pieces. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. You heard me reference it last week, that reference to double destruction doesn't mean that God is not just, that He's going to pay back double for every sin. The idea of double destruction is the same as if you've heard the expression, let me cover the check. Okay, here's the bill. Here, let me cover that bill. You owe $20, here's $20. So double is the idea of paying what is owed. Give them what they deserve. Thus saith the Lord unto me, "Okay, Jeremiah, you're beaten down. You're discouraged a little bit here. Let me give you some more work to do. <laughs> ah, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in. And you see a uh, artist rend- rendering of what Jerusalem would have looked like, uh, and actually in the time of Solomon, you go out towards the left hand of that screen, and there would have been an additional wall going across the central valley." over around what is actually technically Mount Zion. So the city would have been larger than this. But there were different gates going in and around the city. And there was one gate. uh, Right now, it's called the Lion's Gate. It's just north of the temple complex. Uh, Where it was exactly, where was the King's Gate, we don't know. But wherever the King's Gate was would have been the center of civil and judicial government as the elders were to gather in the gates of the city. If this was the king's gate, this would be like the high court, the supreme court, as well as a place of commerce. The gates were where business took place uh, within the city. And obviously, you'd have the flow of traffic coming in and out the gates of the city. Jeremiah was told to go to the king's gate, but not just the king's gate. I want you to start there. But I want you to work your way around all the gates of Jerusalem and say unto them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of. Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day. Neither do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but they made their neck stiff, Imagine if you had a a, 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 a a horse and you were trying to pull the reins to go to the right and the horse just stiffened his neck and pulled back to the left. That's what it means to be stiff-necked, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. You've ever heard the word synecdoche? It's like this, if I said, hey, you've got nice wheels. Well, am I really talking about your tires on your car? Or the mags that you have in your car. No, I'm referencing your car. But the general for the the specific for the general, the general for the specific. The idea of referencing the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a single commandment, but it was indicative of the entirety of their disobedience. Whereas circumcision was more of an individual relationship between a Jew and God. An an individual identity or an individual covenant. The Sabbath was more of a national covenant. A national identity of Israel and Israel's relationship with God. You see the word... uh, Well, let me just reference uh, Exodus chapter 31. Again, this is at Mount Sinai. God gave them this command. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily... My Sabbaths you shall keep. So Not only the seven-day Sabbath, but the seven-year Sabbath and the seven-year of release. Why, Lord? Because it is a token. It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. When I do a wedding, one of the last things I do is I ask the best man for the ring. And then I'll ask the maid of honor for the ring as they exchange rings. And I will say this. The ring is a, a, an illustration, a picture of your love. The fact that it's round represents the never-ending quantity of your love. The precious metal references the purity and value of your love. Here's what I, I charge you both this day to wear this ring as a ceaseless reminder of the vows that you are taking today and of the covenant that you are entering into today. And then the man will take the ring and place it on his wife's finger and say, you know, with this ring, I thee wed. What is this? Does this ring make me married? No, but it tells the world that I'm taken. tells the world that I'm married. And every time I put it on or take it off or look at it, it's a reminder. It constantly reminds me of the covenant relationship that I have with my wife. The Sabbath was an unusual idea. And quite frankly, it demonstrated a great trust in God. You know, for 400 years, they had been slaves in Egypt. And none of the other Gentile nations believed in this taking a day off. Let's face it. If you could make, okay, just for round numbers, if you made $100 a day, if you worked for six days, you'd make $600. If you worked a seventh day, you'd make seven hundred dollars. Well, by golly, we should work more days. We make more money. God said, "Uh "Uh, uh." The Sabbath, recognize the Sabbath wasn't just made for me. I'm making the Sabbath for you. I love you all enough. I don't want you to work yourself to death. Every seventh day, I want you to rest. Trust me, you need the break. Rest your mind. Rest your body. Every seventh year, rest the land. And as illogical as that sounds, you say, if I can make so much money in six days, if I work a seventh day, I'll make more. God says, no, you do it my way, and you will make more. You will be blessed by obeying me. That doesn't make sense logically, but if you obey God, that is trusting God, and I will reward you for that. I will bless you as a result of that. Verse 24, it shall come to pass. If you diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord. To bring in no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein. Then, if you obey me again, the the general for the specific, specific for the general. The idea of obeying the Sabbath is that token that 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 covenant relationship between Israel and God. Now, it's understood that you're going to obey. You're supposed to obey all of God's law. But again, the the references to the Sabbath, the general nature of it. Then. "...shall enter in the gates of this this city kings and princes, sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This city shall remain Haalum forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places about Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the plain and from the mountains, from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. But blessings and cursings... You do it my way, you're going to like it. You disobey me, not so much. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day, and did not bear burden, even entering in the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kinder, kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. And in fact, in 587 B.C., that is exactly what did happen. Next week, we'll be in chapter 18, obviously, since we did 17 tonight.